0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 51 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we are wrapping up our read of the 8th volume in Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time, Path of Daggers. So, Drew, the reins are yours, my man. Take it away. Tell us what's happened. Sure. So, where we left off last time... Egwene had
1: just gotten the Hall of the Tower to declare war on Elida and she firmly took control of the Saladar faction through that and we picked up with Elaine and Nynaeve and the Seafolk and the Kin as they head into Andor and start moving toward Camelon. Mostly it's just a a lot of bickering on the road and and kind of maneuvering and stuff, but Elaine does have some adventures in studying the Turrong as well. Mm -hmm. Adventures. Uh, but that's sort of a short interlude at the beginning of this, and then we head full on into Rand, and we have his machinations and his planning and the eventual whole campaign against the Shanchan in Altara. And uh, that culminates in Rand pulling out Kalindor and basically going crazy with it, uh, wrecking the Shanchan, but also wrecking many of his own forces. After that, uh, we're we're back with Elaine and Nynaeve and that group as they continue heading toward Camelot. Um, we have a murder. Adelius is killed as uh, as well as Ispen, yeah. After being uh, kind of poisoned with Crimson Thorn, and then we're back to Rand in Cairhien where. He returns. The Maidens are unhappy with him. Min is unhappy with him. Kadswin is unhappy with him. Lots of people are unhappy with him. Seems to be uh, the theme of the book. The Renegade Ashaman are unhappy with him. And try to kill him. But he evades that. Sorry, did you Ta'im mention the Maidens? shows up. Yes, I did.
0: Yeah, okay, good.
1: And uh, Taim shows up and uh, tells Rand about what's going on at the Black Tower and the Deserters and, uh, and what they do with Men who are going crazy, and in this moment, Fedwin Moore has gone crazy uh, and in one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the whole series, Rand has to feed Fedwin a cup of sleep and poison him uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and then and then kind of kind of wraps up with you know the that similar um, uh, epilogue with you know the rumors spreading around, but before we got there, Perrin meets with Masima and Faial, Aleandre, that whole group, Morgays, are captured by the Shido. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The plot, the plotline of death, has officially been launched. Mm,
0: yeah, I'm gonna have a little bit to bitch about that going forward in this in this episode. Um, but you know, that that's only gonna be a very very small point. Um. All Things Considered, because we have so much to talk about in this episode, particularly around Rand Althor. We got so much Rand and so many important, pivotal scenes for him as a character. Uh, I, I really can't wait to just dive into our character discussion. But first, we do have a few style points to, to get out of the way. Um, yes. I did write down that he, that Jordan has significantly increased the amount of Rand that we get in this book, which was a major reason that I was interested in this book as a teenager despite the, you know, the increasing amount of side characters that I've been kind of griping about up until this point. Um, But, uh, yeah, like, anything style-wise you want to kick us off with, man?
1: So I think that's interesting that you you bring up that he increased the amount of Rand in this book because, relatively speaking, there's not a lot
0: of Rand. Oh, come on, the entire second half is is practically Rand. We have a few. So so this
1: is a 31-chapter book. Yes, And Rand's first point of view isn't until chapter Mm thirteen. Then he has chapters thirteen and fourteen, and then he's not back in until chapter twenty one.
0: Right, which is why then he has four straight.
1: Then he has four straight, and then there are a couple of uh, um, a couple of non-Rand chapters. Total, Rand only has eight of the thirty one chapters in this book.
0: Yeah. Um, but I, I, mean, I imagine that would still be proportionally greater than the amount of chapters he got in A Crown of Swords. I didn't look that up. That's just a feeling that I have. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think it is. But for me, I, like, I still want to reiterate that the fact that I said, you know, the second half, because for the first half, our, our previous episode, um, we, we covered up through chapter 20. So we just did chapters 21 through 31 on this, uh, on this second yes. half for Path of Daggers. And as you said, Rand did have a big chunk of, like, four straight chapters right at the beginning of yeah. this week's reading, you know, with his his, his uh, campaign against the Shan Chan and the fact that there were so many character-defining pivotal moments for him in those four chapters as well as the fact that we do have a, a few more to come towards the end of this book as well. It's it's the fact that we have so many Rand scenes proportionally in the second half as well as so many pivotal moments for him that I I, right. just, I really see this as a Rand book despite the fact that, as you just said, we only have him for eight out of 31 chapters, was it?
1: Yeah, and, and the kind of further point I wanted to make about that is that uh, Rand only has 8 out of 31 chapters, and on top of that, in his 8 chapters, a big chunk of that Shanshan campaign is not from his point of view. We get, we get several points of view from Shanshan characters. We get uh, uh, Kenar Mirage, we get Furyk Karid. Welcome aboard, Furit and... Karid. I yep. love him. Uh, we get Bakun, uh, we get... Oh, what was the name of the one, like... The one guy who sees, um,
0: oh, man. I still have my, uh, the chapter summaries open here right now on, uh, tarvalon.net. Who are you looking for? The Shogger? Varic. Varick. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Got you.
1: Um, uh, but yeah, and then it's, it's so little Rand, relatively speaking, and all this despite the fact that there is no Matt Coffin in this book. Mm-hmm. A lot of room in this book is spent on uh, Egwene. in fact. She has kind of the um, the lion's share of room in this book, even though she only gets like one brief point of view in the chapters we covered this week.
0: Right, right. Yeah, most of it was in the first half, yeah.
1: And the kind of the results of that, though, is that this is the shortest book in the Wheel of Time. It is. Where with no Matt and with so little Rand and... Honestly, like even though, relatively speaking, Egwene and uh, Elaine and Nynaeve have more time, they also don't have that much word count. You know, it, it, right? There's just a lot less that happens in this book than in some of the volumes we've gotten used to. You know, with with these like massive word counts, like Lord of Chaos and Shadow Rising, The Fires of Heaven, and. You know, and while a crown of swords was smaller than those, it was still quite a bit bigger than the path of daggers. Right. So.
0: Yeah. No, there, there definitely seems to be a a lessening of the uh, the the spectacle and the explosive climax that we've come to expect up to this point, and more of like a a, a character driven study, and, and and big things happening for our characters that are going to change their lives going forward and leading to much bigger things going forward. I did actually write down that this book as an ending. Um, in this book, it really has one of the most lackluster endings. I mean, what's our, what's our big, big climax here? It's the, the, the three Ashiman, Renegade Ashaman uh, attacking Rand in the Sun Palace, or, you know, Fael being captured, um, Igwein finally traveling to Valon. you know. So,
1: uh, this is kind of my second style point, and yeah. that is the structure of this book is very interesting. The yeah, climax of this book really is Rand fighting the Shawnchan. And we right. have an extended Denouement after it. Interesting. And and I think Robert Jordan recognized it. And okay. you know, this is when he was starting to really lose control of the structure of the series, because yeah. if if I'm willing to put money down that had you asked him, you know, years ago when he was still alive, when you sat down to plot your books, did you envision Rand fighting the Chan as the climax of the Path of Daggers? He would have said yes. But then, during the course of writing this book, because he was a discovery writer, he realized, oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z as well, and they have to happen after Rand fights the Shanchan in order for Winter's Heart to work but as a book and in structure.
0: Here's my problem with that, though. Wouldn't that lead to a much larger book, typically, rather than one usually, you know, one this much smaller? If no, not necessarily,
1: case? because there's no
0: Matt. One of his... okay, There's Perrin, no Matt, Perrin. and
1: there's very little Perrin. One of his biggest point-of-view characters is not present at all, and another one only has, like, three chapters, four chapters. You know, so... you talking about Perrin? Yeah. Yeah, okay, got you. Um, it, it, it's... It's a weirdly structured book. It, it has the climax of one uh... The climax of one plot line from, you know, books ago with the Bowl of the Winds happens at the beginning of this book. This book very much seems like, even more than yeah. any other book except for possibly Crossroads of Twilight, a glue book. Something that he did not structure the way he wanted to something that doesn't adhere to a standard book structure in a series but when you're eight books deep into a series as massive as this you're going to run into these issues where your your storylines aren't lining up across the board and so you know with for instance crossroads of twilight a lot of that book is spent kind of dealing with concurrent events to the climax of winter's heart Mm. and in this one uh the climax of Matt's storyline in A Crown of Swords is happening concurrently with the beginning of this book, which is the climax of Elena and Nynaeve's storyline from the last book. Like, it, it, it gets all wonky.
0: You know, you're, you're actually... You make a good point. I so, considered... really, we have oh, sorry,
1: two major climaxes.
0: Oh, no problem. Uh, when you say two major climaxes, I assume you're referring to Ran's uh, campaign against the Shan Chan and his fight with the Ashaman in the Sun Palace? Uh, no, um... Uh, the bowl of the winds. Okay, okay, and... that's where I was going to go next with this because I was about to say I, I really wouldn't have minded too much if the bowl of the winds and correcting the weather that's wrong with the world had happened at the end of this book because that would have been a much more fitting climax, I think, and it was very, very, of course, you can't argue that it was very, very pivotal for the world as a whole um, it just uh-huh. seems I don't know it's a little odd that Jordan the, we finally got the bowl of the Winds at the end of a crown of swords and immediately at the beginning of this book, we, we see it used. you know it, it felt like he kind of jumped the gun there a little bit considering how I don't know I don't want to say I don't want to say disappointing. this climax at the end of this book was not disappointing. none of this book was really that disappointing to me, but I, it just felt like after you know Dumais Wells after uh, ki- like killing the Forsaken in A Crown of Swords what's coming next in Winter's Heart like this particular ending was a little I don't know
1: plain. well and that's what I mean yeah. about like how he had to use this book as a glue book because he couldn't just do the bowl of the wind scene at the end of this because the ramifications of the weather changing play a big part in what's going on with the other storylines you know like with the Shido in Altara, and sure. with Rand fighting the Shanshan in the middle of the Samaras, you know, these hurricanes. Yeah, yeah. And, and on top of that, what would Elaine and Nynaeve and company have been doing all book long?
0: Right, he would have had to find something else. You know,
1: because he needed to get them to Camelon by the end of this book, so that Winter's Heart can start with them in Camelon and set up the Succession storyline and the, excuse me, the Siege. Yeah. So, it's like he he really had to fit some strange jigsaw pieces together, and the result is this book is a little more disjointed. Disjointed, yeah. I, that's a good. One I for it. I don't think it's necessarily a bad book,
0: and in fact, I I enjoy this book greatly. Hmm. Same same. I, I I definitely enjoyed the book. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely it, it's definitely not a weak book. I mean, there's there's still a lot to be had out of the the short amount of time that we spent in the world for a path of daggers um for example, for example, there's something that I, that I came to appreciate a little more. This is still part of my... I'm going to insert this in my style discussion, despite the fact that it's kind of... It only really loosely belongs here. But the honest truth is that I, I didn't really want to add a ton of White Tower Aes Sedai to into my characters to discuss for today. <laughs> but I want to talk about Chapter 26 in this context. You know, the extra bit with Ciane and Pivara and, and Zera and company, you know. Uh-huh. It, was, it was really different of a read this time around. This is my first time... Um, not my first time understanding what's what's happening in this scene, but the first time I've understood the magnitude of what's just happened. You know, We we finally get to see some measure of true competence out of the Aes Sedai who remain in the White Tower. You know, like, unknown to Elida, her secret hounds have not only found what definitely appears to be a foolproof way of unearthing the Black Aja, but like their astute observations and their faultless logic, I mean, it's incomplete logic, but it's still faultless logic. They've also unearthed the spies in the tower for the rebelized eyes right yep. the ferrets that were planted i thought that was really really well done when i realized what was coming i think i think it was cyan who was drilling zara on why she lied about her return route to the tower you know seeing zara's dawning horror i kind of felt that same dawning horror this time around i thought jordan found a really excellent and really neat way to kind of bring these white tower politics you know into, back into the equation without in my opinion without boring us I, I had some some reservations about that in the last episode I remember you asking me about that um, about this entire plot line with what's going on inside the white tower um, but I hadn't uh-huh. realized how, how deftly done this was I do have a whole new appreciation for this subplot um, and to get to find that little nugget in a volume this size I, I thought was it was it was, a, it was a it was a nice surprise it really was. Okay.
1: Yeah, I I do really enjoy that chapter. Uh, it gives us not yeah. only some insight into what uh, what Aes Sedai are capable of when they are at the you know kind of the peak of their game, but also gives us a little more insight into the workings of the tower and and we get to see these you know like the chair of remorse and like uh, it, it, this kind of lore aspect to the hidden workings of the White Tower. Yeah. And I, I enjoy that a lot. And of course, I like Sian a lot. Yeah, has, as up, you said. You know, in the <laughs> past. And uh, and while this scene annoys me a little bit because this is when she sort of starts losing control of the task that was put in her lap, um, it's also a little hard to fault them because Sian especially is extraordinarily competent. And very easily and naturally takes command and is effective. You
0: know? Okay. Well, was it Was it uh, Saren who was, was grilling Zara on why she lied about her return to the tower? Or was it Sian? The, the brown Saren. Oh, Saren. Okay. Yeah, Sian yeah. is the white. Oh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. And I, and I think it's, it's really indicative of what happens. Especially in this scene, we finally get to see what happens. What can be accomplished when the Ajas work together. Because this is this is a combination, not just of the uh, any one particular aja, but we have the red represented with Pivara, with Sien, we have the white, with Saren, and we have the brown. Uh, Zara is she green? I, I don't remember which aja uh, she belongs Taline
1: to. was green.
0: Ah, got you, got you.
1: Although black, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, But um,
0: yeah, I think it's really cool to finally see what happens. Like not only are like are these Aes Sedai in the tower, they're not all incompetent. It's really Elida that's uh, behind a lot of this. Um, but when they can finally come together and towards a common goal, we see the Ajas, like their respective talents coming together to, to, you know to do some impressive things. I thought it was yeah. it was about time that we got some more of that because up until this point, the White Tower has just kind of been like a oh crap, here we go again. let's get back into these incompetent fools and see what they're going to screw up in this book, right? But yeah, this time around it was it was definitely interesting. Although there's a little bit of that because we do have the Elida and Alviar in points of view. We have the Elida and Alviar in points
1: of which, view. Yeah. You know, we get to see a little more of their tug of war power struggle yeah, going on. A little tough there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and we also got to see uh, Tovin. Tovin Gazal. Yeah, and with the Lugane. very ill fated attack on the Black Tower.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, did, did not work out at all. <laughs> not in the way that she expected, that anyone expected, including the reader. Um I also want to point out Jordan's continued just blase use of double entendres with his chapter titles. Uh uh-huh. chapter twenty seven is called The Bargain. You know, and as not like Rand doesn't oh, sorry, what am I trying to say here? I'm looking at my notes and I wrote something incorrectly here. Um Rand does what the hell? Oh, so Rand comes to this agreement with Cad Swain, right? Yes. But we also hear the terms that the Sea folk had negotiated for you know, via Marana. The, literally, The Bargain, as they call it. You know? I thought that was... That was that was pretty cool. It was cheeky. I saw that, and I was like, okay, okay there, Mr. Jordan. And while we're on the subject, I still love the way Cat handles Rand. I mean, it's dangerous, and at points, yeah, it's a little too much, but it's just so unique amongst any other character. I, I did definitely enjoy Chapter 27 a whole lot. Uh-huh.
1: Um, yeah. Um, I... I- I like, you know, that you're pointing out, you know, the, the kind of double meanings of chapter titles that Robert Jordan does, uh, because from a style point, those are actually Harriet's doing, by and large. Harriet really? almost completely named the titles uh, in each
0: of the chapters in the series. In the series as a whole, not just like specifically for this book or anything. In mean, the series as a whole. Wow. I, that's something I didn't know until now. That doesn't surprise me, but I had not known. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um,
1: but yeah, it, it, that's always been something that I've enjoyed, and it's one of the reasons, for instance, I like uh, Gene Wolfe so much. His his titles always have kind of a surface meaning where you're like, oh yeah, that's what that's referring to. But if you dig, you know, dig down a layer or two, you'll find a second or a third
0: meaning, and that's always a lot of fun to to discover and dig into. Damn. So, uh, my final style discussion point here. Um, I briefly just want to discuss jordan's ability to break our heart with this scene we get with you know are you know where i'm going with this oh wait no yeah. no 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 i think you don't know where i'm going with this you're thinking i'm talking joan and about adley? yeah no that's not what I, or or more no well, I, so
1: there are two scenes that really get me in this and that's when rand inadvertently kills joan and adley right with calendar yep. and then when rand has to poison fedwin more
0: yeah both of those both of those are heartbreaking but neither of those honestly neither of those impacted me as as much as the scene with Fandine discovering the bodies of Adelius and Ispan really um, for me I think that was the hardest scene in the book to read um, hmm. and I think it was kind of you know what I think it was I think it was Jordan's play on this sort of legendary Isidai that pose a uh, poise not pose that kind of dro- <laughs> and I wrote down drove that point home if you'll forgive the expression in this context uh, <laughs> you know Van Vandine's still calm rationally considering the situation but it's only once the others have like have left the tent that she completely throws away any and all serenity and just the, the image of that tent and that scene there with those shrill screams coming out yeah, I think I think it was Lan that blocked Dainee's way back in to go comfort her you know it was just it was heartbreaking I, I wrote that down i said it before and i'll say it again here it was heartbreaking and it had so much impact for it you know and the fact that jordan managed to do this to me with tertiary characters that i hadn't really given a damn about previously i can only just stop and say bravo hmm. bravo well okay. done yeah so that so was want to go ahead do
1: you want to move into uh characters i then? really
0: really do i really do okay. Who do we want to start with? I mean, the vast majority of my points are about Rand, so Same. <laughs> we could start with Rand or we can end with Rand. I'm for starting with Rand. All right, all right, let's yep. do it. Okay. So as I said before, we have just so damn much happening for Rand in this volume. He's struggling to balance with everything that he's taken over. We've got Tyr, we've got Kyrian, we've got Andor, we have Ilion. Now that we have Ilion. Not counting all of the Iel and the, and now his negotiations with the Sea Folk, you know, even with uh, Drew, you mentioned previously that Rand has started to learn the value of delegation and, and handing off yeah. responsibility to his uh, I don't say his inferiors but those below him in chain of command. Um, it's it's clear that the burden of authority is starting to seriously weigh down on the Dragon Reborn. And I want to get your thoughts on that. Like, what do you think of Rand's state in this book as he's continuously struggling to balance everything that he needs to balance?
1: Yeah, it it is a major factor in his mentality throughout these chapters. The stress of command and the stress of having to trust other people is getting to him to the point where he starts, you know, overtly... Becoming paranoid about even those closest to him, where he's, you know, he's wondering about like Flynn and Narishma, and he's like, I can trust Narishma. He he went and got Kalendor and brought it to me, and I can trust <laughs> Flynn because he <laughs> saved my life. Yeah. But you know, people can change, and he's like, you yeah. know, and it's like, dude, that happened like five minutes ago. Somebody's not changing their mind that fast, you know. And and what's scary about it is that he's aware of it. He stops himself every every <laughs> okay. time he starts going down the road, and he's like. Oh, this is like the dreads or whatever it's called, you know, where he thinks of the Coplin who who like starved to death because he wouldn't eat anything for fear of poison and right. yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty intense being in Rand's head, and this is where like I, I really want to harp on this as kind of a tie between style and character. This four chapter sequence, uh answering the summons, gathering clouds fog of war storm of battle and a time for iron is in my opinion uh at worst a top three sequence robert jordan ever wrote it is my favorite in the whole series what he is doing here is so layered and so impressive where he's tying rand's um, mental state his internal landscape to an external battlefield landscape and an external political landscape everything is so chaotic everything is so underhanded and so convoluted and you know he's he's sending out groups of these nobles and then bringing some back with ashaman to misdirect people and he's he's only keeping those least trustworthy nearby him so he can use them as you know the the butcher's bill as he tells bashir and and it's it's so incredible how Robert Jordan weaves these layers of conflict seamlessly throughout these four chapters, where we have we have um, Rand dealing with uh, like Torvald and Rochade and Gedwin, and we have Rand dealing with Wiramon and uh, uh, Gregorin and Aile and Anayella and Samaradrid and then we have Rand balancing his like m- military momentum with Bashir's military advice and expertise and failing while at the same time winning and like you know so it's it's this huge convoluted mess that culminates in just one of the most incredible scenes in the whole series when Rand finally pulls out Kalandor and says I'm taking this into my hands and and we have some just amazing lines, you know. The well, he's being knocked from his horse, and yeah. he, he's in his madness. He thinks it's the Shan Shan attacking him, and he's screaming, raging, "Come against me if you dare! I am the storm!" And it's like making it literally rain lightning, thousands of bolts at a time. And, yeah, I mean it's so powerful. And then it ends with him realizing. You know, seeing Joan and Adley's pale, dead face, and he's like, What have I done? And he turns in retreat. And then it's counterbalanced by that last scene where we have the shan Chan also turning in retreat, you know, with their banner general dead and their forces laid in ruin. And he's like, For the second time on these shores,
0: the ever victorious army has tasted defeat. Yeah. Like, Oh,
1: so good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to I point out that this is not something that Drew is just randomly going off about on a tangent. This is something that he has been telling me uh, for many, many years now. In almost all of our discussions about our favorite moments in the Wheel of Time, Drew, you've been bringing up this four-chapter sequence, and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm glad that I finally get a chance to, to sit you down and listen to you justify why it's such a great sequence it really is and it honestly is, is a very very underrated sequence I don't really see this listed very often in, in many people's no. yeah. favorite stretches of the Wheel of Time uh, not many events in this book and as a whole honestly have been mentioned a lot online um, but this is something that I have a much greater respect for now that I've you know now that I'm friends with Drew McCaffrey and I've heard him tell me exactly <laughs> why it's so good going back in there and reading it has been surreal it's been awesome um, I am going to piggyback on this kind of point, though, with Narishma, and I'm going to go on a tiny little bit of a rant about Randall Thor. I kind of bitched about this in the previous episode. I'm going to bitch about it more now, and I'm going to add more justification for it. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> Narishma hands over this package with Kalindor hidden inside. We don't know what it is yet. And, and Rand stops the man just as he's about to leave the tent. And I was expecting something along the lines of, you know, and Arishma, you did well. You know. Turns out that Rand was just stopping him to prove how much of a dick he can still be, though. You know, if you tell anyone about this, I will kill you. I was like, yep. okay there, Rand. You know, he's, Arishma's gonna take Colindor. He's willingly gonna return it to you without hesitation. But now you're worried he's gonna start spreading your secrets. You know, I, I get that Rand is struggling to hold on to sanity. This is something that you said to me before. I do get that. But compared to some of the other, like, more astute observations that we do see him making, particularly with his counterpoints to Torval earlier in the in the previous episode, you know, about tactics and and viable threats, this seems almost willfully ignorant. And that's what bothers me. It's only made worse in my eyes later in the Sun Palace as well, where Rand blatantly... He, he nearly killed Narishma and he lies. He lies about not having recognized him. Yeah. In that moment, I honestly stopped and I just thought, fuck you, Rand. <laughs> I, I seriously had that thought.
1: Yeah, it that's fair. Me. And that, that goes back to why I love these chapters so much being in Rand's head because this is another juxtaposition where Rand's interior landscape is becoming so fractured and so mad quite literally mad but outwardly this is Rand at the absolute height of his powers we have him at the head of an army of three nations plus men from all over uh, the westlands who have come of their own will to fight for rand among the ashaman and yeah, the legion of the dragon but it's such a small army, all
0: things considered i mean look what he was doing but but, but it's five. what it
1: it's what this means. In book five, he's leading one faction. He's leading the Aiel.
0: Oh, in the this, Aiel he's leading, multiple he's factions leading, the
1: but they have, they're all following him. They're, they're, it's, it's like, the clans have their own dynamic. Right. What he's doing here is leading men who hate each other.
0: Okay. Got you. Got you. Okay.
1: And, and he's doing it with such force of will. Where even Wiramon and Gregorin, these guys who are, are used to having absolute control of their surroundings, find themselves jumping when Rand says jump. You know, and he's leading not only a small army, if you can call 6,000 men a small army, but he's leading 50 Ashaman. Mm. Which, as Rand says outright, he's like, I don't need these 6,000 soldiers. I could do this with yeah. just the Ashaman. Heck, I could, I could do it, it myself. myself. <laughs> yeah. But, but this is more than just Rand making a strategic you know maneuver this is Rand making a statement to the Shanshin look at the forces I can bring to the table you know when he talks about how in some of these battles all he does is stand there or sit on his horse he doesn't get involved he just stands there to look in charge like he's not he's not there to make a point about Rand Thor the warrior he's here to make a point about Randall Thor the ruler
0: you know, even even more so than than leading factions who have hated each other in the past. Obviously, the 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 biggest example I could think of, the most notable being the Ilioners and the Tyrans, uniting behind the Dragon Reborn there and their 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 small uh-huh. army here. But you know what I really found that to be particularly quaint was with the servants and how we have servants in the green and gold livery of Ilion, and we have servants in the black in sorry it's... What are the colors? Yeah, black, You're black and Black and gold. Black and gold. Okay, so it was gold. They're uh, the defenders. The yeah, the defenders of Ili- but the, the fact that we get both of these especially just with the colors mashed together in one single scene. I'm not like it was again, I used this word earlier and I'll use it I'll use it here. It was a little surreal. Uh, just seeing the fact that one servant is Eleonor and another servant is Tyron and they're they're just both doing the same thing. It kind of tied everything together even on the micro scale. Obviously on the macro scale it's very important, but to see that even in the micro was was pretty cool. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's such a masterful display
1: of layering and contrast in this where Rand outwardly everything is about his appearance and inwardly he's a a mess, you know, like he he can barely control Sadeas. He's going crazy. He's he's got all of these machinations going on that he's barely keeping a grasp of and in in fact he's losing a grasp and he almost dies during this battle because Weirum pulls a, you know, a a Weiraman essentially. He acts acts incompetent, but very cleverly opens the door for a Shanshan attack to get Rand. You know, like, and this is one of the things that I really like about Wierumon as a character. He's one of my favorite dark friends in this series. He does such a
0: good job of portraying himself as a complete idiot. He's not? And, no. Wow. I, I didn't know this. I thought... I Honestly, I just assumed he was an idiot this whole time, too.
1: No, no. The As you read do? through this, it becomes more and more obvious that he's very specifically crafting a persona in Rand's eyes, and is so good at what he does that he can make it look like idiocy. And then, in a contrast to him, we have Anaiella here, who is also trying to craft a, a facade of like, you know, simpering, silly lady, but has this underlying, you know, because Anaiella is also a dark friend. Mm, yeah. And, and she is much less competent at it than Wiramon. So we're, we, we're, Wiramon... Being... does many things that had Rand not had, like, backup plans and had Bashir not been around, Rand would have been screwed.
0: So you're saying Wiramon <laughs> like, is being duplicitous. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I hadn't actually considered that before. I honestly thought he was just a buffoon. This, this must no, have been no. s- uh, something that just kind of went over my head here interesting. No,
1: it, it, it comes to a head, you know, we can we can really touch on this more in Towers of Midnight, but it comes to a head when yeah. Rand outs him.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Where, where Wieramon shows very clearly that it was an act. Huh. So
0: See, in that scene yeah. that you're thinking of, where he calls him out on his shit, I kind of still think walk thinking he was just a buffoon.
1: Wieramon, in that scene, Wieramon starts being the buffoon and then realizes it's a waste of time, he's just like, oh, no, whatever, and walks away. Like, he stops. He very clearly shifts personas.
0: Another thing I really so. like about this sequence is how... And this is this just the teenager in me going, Oh, it's so cool to see Rand here, is seeing how Rand is, is leading these armies. He's leading his own men. And he's also leading Bashir. Sorry, like, Bashir's leading his men. And then we have Weirman. Like, the fact that Rand himself is actually comparing his dead to Bashir's. is just... It's, it's kind of surreal and kind of cool. The fact that Rand... Is is competent enough at this point to to do that kind of thing to lead a, a force like that tactically um, yeah. as well as as a figurehead? I just thought it was it, it was it was really cool to see Rand again acting the general in such a direct way, you know that we haven't really seen even even in book five as I just mentioned previously when he's leading the Aiel in Ka- against uh, the Shaido and Kyrian you know, this place, this day, he still wasn't being as direct of a general as he was being, or at least of a tactician as he was being here.
1: Yeah, everything in that battle outside of Kyrian, Rand was in the background. You know, it was the ideal clan chiefs who came up with the the order of battle and then kind of ran it by Rand and got some advice. Yeah. Well, Matt came in after the fact.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Rand was was the the one
0: power. Rand was the big guns.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Matt, like, walked in after they'd done the whole planning thing and, like, Went through the whole battle plan himself, and lands like it took you like twenty seconds to come up with a battle plan that the Aiel clan chiefs <laughs> took like hours to do. Yeah, and yeah, I can't wait the, to get more Matt. Yes, yeah, we will get plenty more in the next book. Ooh, uh, yeah, but you know, I remember in A Crown of Swords where you mentioned how much you enjoyed Rand in the latter parts of that book, where he's like on such a roll. Yeah, right? he's he's Rand at the peak of his powers. The momentum I think he had. This well, is. This is another sequence like that where Rand is just fully, you know, in control of, at, at, at least to an extent, in control of what he can be in control of. And he is riding on so much momentum until it all comes spiraling apart, like it does in The Crown of Swords when the bubble of evil hits the, the camp. Yeah. You know, and, and and so we see these sort of rises and falls with Rand's... uh not necessarily his character arc, because I think his character arc at this point is going pretty steadily downhill. Uh, <laughs> but but the plot points in his character arc, hes he's showing tremendous aptitude and power, and then it all comes crashing down, and then it comes back up, and then it comes crashing down. And it's how Robert Jordan manages to keep tension going in, you know, the eighth book, the seventh book of a massive series where you know that you're not going to get to the nadir of Rand's character arc for a while yet. Probably, you know, like when, when we're only about halfway through the series, obviously we got, we got a lot more to happen with Rand's character. We can't have him, you know, reaching these, these climactic character moments this early. So we need to find other ways mm-hmm. to
0: keep his plot
1: line tense.
0: It's true. It does have to get darker before it gets lighter. And it will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another big moment for Rand. You you did briefly touch upon this earlier. The fact that he finally has to accept defeat, for once, really hard to read, but still poignant. Now the Dragon Reborn is not going to save the world without stumbling at some point or another, and this was a big stumble. I I, I wrote down. I said another stone on the path to humility. Right. Uh-huh. Um. And speaking of this metaphorical you know path to humility, chapter twenty-seven, there is a real winning moment where Mirana finally got to unleash her frustration at Rand. Oh, God, I found that <laughs> so damn rewarding. She makes so many good points in such quick succession, and though she does, I admit, clearly go too far, it was still so entertaining to witness that I forgive her for every word. You know, Mirana Aes Sedai, so unflappable, so capable, flinging all of Randall Thor's ignorance back in his own face it was just so much win. There's yeah. So much win. Yeah, and you know, it's
1: it's something to keep in mind as we read on here how Rand's plot points are moving in this pattern. Where Lord of Chaos, in many ways, was a loss for Rand. This is the first time he's experienced real danger to his person. Yeah. Where he was defeated by the Tower Eyes Sedai. And while he was saved. Like, was the battle at Dumais Wells really that good for him? Like, you know, he's, he's a worse person. I think any, everybody can agree. Rand is a worse person coming out of Dumais Wells. And yeah. and then the next big plot line, he comes out on top with Ilian and taking down Samael. And he doesn't really have a, a major fall at the end of that plot line. But then here, he has another big fall. And the next plot line, we're going up to the cleansing, and he's back up on top of the world. And then his next one is going to be another fall with the uh, losing his hand and Semerage and all of that in yep. Life of Dreams. And like, so he's he's seeing this you know, this up-down, up-down thing.
0: Hmm. I don't know if I consider Dumai's Wells too much of a down. Yes, he did get captured by the Aes Sedai. Yes, he was beaten. Yes, he was given psychological problems going forward and trust issues going forward for the rest of his life. Um, as well you know as well as just the claustrophobia that results from it but in that scene in that climactic scene I mean he broke the the main body of the Shido, and he had the first Aes Sedai swear fealty to him I mean those are but such did he huge... do that well the Ashaman did that I suppose
1: yeah so and it was taim and Taim is serving the shadow everything taim does there serves the shadow there are there's so many consequences to do My that are not good for Rand.
0: Oh yeah, there are, there are plenty. There there's a yeah. ton of them, yeah. But I, I don't think it was all bad. There, there was a lot of win for Rand there at the end. It's part of the reason why I love that book so much. You know, it was difficult. <laughs> it was certainly to, exciting. <laughs> it was difficult until the very very end, and then it was just like, oh yeah, okay, I'm glad. Um... But yeah, going forward, there's still a lot of negative repercussions from what happened to him there. Um, we're still on the, on the on the character of Rand. I have a couple more points. Actually, just one more point um, to make about Rand. And that's the fact that we're seeing more vulnerability from Rand to counter this growing arrogance of his. You know, When we have these rogue Ashiman attack the palace, twofold we see his vulnerability. First, we see his terror that Min is actually hurt. Yep. That she might actually be dead. Um, something we hadn't really seen up until this point, but then, you know, he, additionally, he waits until he's out of sight of Min before he embraces the true source, because he knows that this increasing sickness is going to make him look weak. Yep. So, I don't know, like, he does have, as you said, Drew, he has a lot of highs, he has a lot of downs, he has, he's on this roller coaster, um, of emotions, carrying him through his journey to Sheol Ghoul. um... At the end of the book here, we do see some much-needed vulnerability out of Randall Thor to, to kind of still humanize this icon that is the Dragon Reborn. And, of course, at the very yeah. end they're wrapping up my points about Rand, a cup of sleep, you know. Right. Wow. Just, just, damn. It's so brutal, so hard to read. Um. Yeah, that's pretty much everything I have to say about Rand for this volume. Yeah, Okay.
1: Alright, do you want to move
0: on to Elaine? Yeah, I only have one point about Elaine. That's it. Okay. Um, And I want to say that I'm so, so glad that Elaine has finally returned to Camelin and and Andor as a whole. It's been such a source of frustration for me, watching the Aes Sedai kind of maneuver her here, maneuver her there. Kind of, I just, I wanted her, even as a teenager, I recall specifically just being so impatient with the fact that she hasn't yet returned to claim the throne that is rightfully hers. Um, it wasn't as eventful as I was expecting her return, but that's you know I, I find that kind of cool in its own right now. You know, seeing as how delicate the situation is in Kailyn. Um, yeah. But the whole, I'll say this: I have a confession. The whole idea of this Rand isn't giving me the throne, or like I'm not accepting the throne, <sighs> claiming yeah. it. It just kind of irks me a little bit. I mean, I get it. I get it. Andor has this, this sort of unique pride. In the strength of its queens. Morgaze and Elaine's stellar examples. They both have some grounds upon which to act this, and I'm going to say petulant, you know, but when I heard, what really did it for me was when I heard Dylan claim that this entire moot point, let's be real, it's a moot point and or is rands no matter how much he respect, how much respect he has for Elaine. But this particular point was the entire basis upon which Dylan was going to decide standing for or against Elaine. You know, if you had said that you're coming to accept it from the dragon, I would be against you. But the fact that you tore down his banners, the fact that you're claiming it in your own right, I'm going to support you. It felt almost cheesy. Almost cheesy. I couldn't help thinking again and again, like, we get it. Women are very powerful in Andor. Yeah, no, okay, I understand that Elaine is very strong of character. It's ultimately why she gathers the support she does. But holy crap, Why do you have to be so special compared to literally every other nation that has sworn for the dragon? Why do you have to make it so clear again and again? We're special and or is more important than everybody else. It's just, it was beaten into the ground so much it kind of felt like a a flimsy excuse to make Elaine angry at Rand again. Sorry, go ahead. My rant is done. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I understand why she acts the way she does. And I understand why the, the citizenship and the nobility act the way they do around you know, the dynamics of, yeah, you know, the Lion Throne. That said, part of this is sort of being lost in the woods, and that is the throne was lost. Morgay's lost the throne, effectively, to Robin. Yeah. Rand was the one who took that throne back from Robin. Robin and was got literally sitting in the death, throne death, when yeah. Rand made that gateway into the palace. Like... It, this wasn't something where like Rand and Robin were just <laughs> incidental to the succession of, you know, the lion throne and the Rose crown. They were directly involved. Robin was sitting on that throne.
0: Yeah. I can't like, stop picturing Robin sitting on that throne and that look on his face and Rand opened open that gateway preceded oh, by yeah. fire and lightning. Oh, I mean, we're talking about three books previously now and I'm still yeah. getting chills just thinking about it. Sorry. I had I had to mention that before we got past it.
1: So it, it is very annoying that they want to completely ignore what Rand did for Andor. Yeah. Like
0: they just want to brush it aside. You know, they're, they're treating Rand
1: as they're treating Rand as Robin basically.
0: Yeah. As a usurper, like, as somebody yeah. who deigns to think that he owns the fucking country. No, even he though, saved your fucking country, bitch. Sorry. I'm yeah. Just... And
1: he's like, let me just make sure order is kept until you can come back and take your rightful
0: throne. Like <laughs> He killed one of the Forsaken, liberated your country from that Forsaken, and avenged your mother's death. At least do him the respect yeah. of leading his banners up when you accept that throne, or if you claim the throne, because it's such <laughs> an important distinction. Sorry. The, I'm just, uh, hmm. the other part of that sort of
1: sequence where they're traveling through Android that I found amusing... Was uh, the succession of you know scenes where Elaine is speaking with the citizens, mm. and they're all like, "Man, it sure is a shame Elaine's dead," and Elaine's just like, mm, mm-hmm, "Yep, mm-hmm. yep, I have to bite yeah, her tongue on that she's one." She's definitely dead, like, yeah. <laughs> And then the one guy's like, "No, Elaine's alive, and I can prove it," and she's like, "Mm-hmm, yep." <laughs> like, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> but the the last no, you know, what, I'm gonna I'm gonna save that for lore. Let me save that for lore. Okay. okay. So, uh, is there anybody else you want to talk
0: about um, in the segment? <clears throat> I just have one point about Perrin. I, I briefly alluded to this earlier. I'm just going to get this out of the way. I enjoyed watching Perrin put Misima in his place. Yes. I'm a little disappointed that he didn't press the point about traveling to meet Rand, though. I mean, okay, yada yada. Well, only the blessed Lord Dragon should travel so. But, like, I mean, all Perrin had to do was press the point. The Lord Dragon demands your presence right now, or e- like even something like, "Oh, oh, you're above following his orders." Then his his direct orders don't yeah. pertain or, to you, or just be like,
1: "Uh, the Lord Dragon has granted his blessing to these Ashaman." <laughs> you know, like make it make it this super uh, that, religious that's... experience for Masima that he's like turned channeling into, like.
0: Yeah, but that would be so against Perrin's character to just randomly up and flowerly talk his way into that. Like, I don't know. How would it feel if Perrin did that? It would have been, been effective, but that would have been so against Parent's character in that case. I think it would have been more in line with who he is and his character to just bluntly come out and say, dude, I mean, you don't have a choice. He's ordered it. Are you going to be a hypocrite? I mean, sure. Yeah, you could have done that too. <laughs> I don't know. It, it would have just been a little too... Uh... <laughs> a little... I don't know, a little too false if Perrin had done that, I think. But there's, there's so much bullshit that could have been avoided if Perrin had done so much as five seconds thinking before meeting with Masima. But nope, now we're going to be stuck with three books of Perrin being a useless tit. So I'm not <laughs> looking forward to the you know his upcoming scenes. I'm really not. <laughs> to the plod. Yeah, the plod. <laughs> yeah. So, um, And I just okay. wanted to say, I was really bummed that the Shanshan General, Kenar Mirage, he was killed. True. Uh, he, I thought he was an inco- uh, incompetent. I thought he was truly competent. It, you know, the fact that he managed to to yeah, maneuver yeah, yeah. as well as he did against Randall Thor, Davern Bashir, and it, it was wireman right, that was leading the uh, the other faction. Uh,
1: well, Wiremon wasn't really like making decisions. Rand was like Rand and Bashir well, were
0: I laying there three, out the strategic three main groups. There was Rand's group, Bashir's group. There was not a third group.
1: Well no, like they they split off into like companies at different points, but the whole high level strategy was made by Bashir and Rand.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Wormon wasn't sitting down and being like, "Well, my lord Dragon, we're going
0: to do this and this." And anytime no, he I tries thought, to like, do that.
1: Rand's like, "You're a fucking idiot." Shut
0: when-, <laughs> <up."> <laughs> when Rand was like Rand was comparing his dead that topped Bashir's own dead by, like, close to 200. I thought there was another a third group that still had yet well, to be no, counted.
1: I mean, he's he's talking about, yeah, like, groups led by the other lords. But that's not because of, like, oh, Wiramon came up with this whole battle strategy. No, no, no I'm not it saying Weiramon had
0: anything to do with the planning of it. I just thought yeah. he was at the head of a third army.
1: Uh, a, a faction orders. of the army, yes. Yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, Rand split them into five columns. Five columns.
1: For, I thought it was three. That, that's what got me, okay. So, when they're going to face off against Mirage and his, like, 40,000, yeah. Rand splits them into five columns to hit them from all sides. Okay,
0: I thought it was three. That's where I was getting confused. I thought Rand was at the front of one, to Bashir at the front of a second, and I don't know why I thought Weirman was at the head of the third. I thought well, it was three Well,
1: was, he was at the head of one of the columns, but it was like Gregorin had one, Samaradrid had one, Weirman ah, had one. Gregorin and you know,
0: Samaradrid, yeah interesting i forgot about those two cool yeah but, but i just want to say you know mirage i thought he was a cool dude man i was a little bummed that he died but knowing what's going forward with furya kareed <laughs> he's a word oh name, yeah
1: definitely. well that's so it's one of these strange things with the shan, shan that readers have to grapple with how on a personal level so many of the shan, shan are decent people yeah but they are culturally and institutionally awful you know like like but, you get these guys like Bakun, who's talking about he's like, I don't take pride in something as petty as like, oh my men have orderly tents. He's like, I've been in the Ever Victorious Army for thirty years. I do my job. I'm proud that I was chosen to be among the forerunners, but like you know, other that I'm doing my duty. And like yeah, and then you know with Mirage and with uh, Furet Kareed, where Kareed like kills um what was it Janaka or whatever his name was the like stupid banner general that was with him. Uh, who, like, uh, told the scouts to uh, press on, and because uh, of that, they missed Jadronka. Jadronka. Oh. He, yeah, he he told the scouts to press on until they found Rand's army, and Kareed's like, you did what? And all the other <laughs> officers are like, oh, uh, shit. Oh, yeah, I remember that moment, yeah. You did and what? Then, <laughs> and then immediately afterward, their army gets ambushed because the scouts missed... All the Legion of the Dragon guys that they weren't looking for, and Jadranka's like, "No, we're gonna rally the troops and attack." And and before he could finish the sentence, Kareed puts his sword through the guy's throat, and he's like, "We rally what can be rallied, and we retreat."
0: Yeah, we save what can like, be saved. Yeah, yeah. Damage. Control.
1: So yeah, it's it's fun being in certain Shanchan heads because they're like they're cool people, but it's always. You know, important to keep in context what, like, you know, the the dark side of of what Shanchen is. While they have these redeeming qualities, they also have these awful qualities.
0: Yeah. So cool. Um, that that wraps up all of my character points for this, uh, for this section of this book. I'm ready to go on to my uh, questions for you. If you have nothing else as far as characters.
1: Uh, I do not have anything else as far as characters. Okay.
0: Okay. So I have, uh, four questions for you. Um, All right. <laughs> I'll start right now I, and I'll say, let me, let me finish this one. Cause I'm, I'm going to ask the question, but I'm also going to give my brief, brief thoughts and then I'll see what you say. Okay. Okay. So, I want to ask, what the hell did happen with Narishma when he went to retrieve Colindor? Because, as I understand, <laughs> the man claims he was almost killed due to Rand leaving out key details. But Rand doesn't seem to understand what went wrong. He seems certain that he gave the other man all the information necessary. And I, I assume Narishma isn't lying. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he's... <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I'm absolutely certain that he's loyal. So, what gifts? Go ahead. What happened? So...
1: There is not a canon answer here. Oh, great. this was actually something I was going to... A question I was going to put to you to see what you thought I was just... Actually, I just
0: thought of a possible answer, but go ahead. Because there are really two options here. One is that
1: Narishima's being honest, and Ran's being honest. And Ran told him everything that he did with Kalendor. Narishima went to get it, and one or more of the Forsaken in the intervening time went and laid traps around Kalandor for Rand. That Narishma barely avoided. Okay. The other option here is that Rand, in his growing paranoia and distrust, wanted to trust Narishma and wanted to use this as a, uh, a test for him, which he did, for sure did.
0: Mm-hmm. But...
1: Some little part of him uh lied. some little part of him was like, mm, I don't fully trust him. I'm not going to tell him about this one thing." but then personally, like- personally, I think that Rand was telling the truth, and it was one or more of the forsaken who left traps around calendar.
0: Oh, I hadn't considered that possibility see the 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 answer that I just really quickly came up with while you were describing that. Um, I'd like to offer one possible solution. When Rand showed him this password, like, or not this password, but like the way to get through his defenses around Kalindor, perhaps the, you know, the power fluctuating weirdly in the location where they were at the time might have affected the weave or weaves that Rand showed Narishma or corrupted the weaves that Rand showed Narishma to get through the defenses around Kalindor.
1: I don't think that's the case no? uh, because the way nourishment described it was like your instructions were incomplete, not your instructions were wrong. Your instructions were incomplete. You
0: didn't tell me everything. Okay. Yeah. I remember nourishment saying that too, that it was incomplete and that. Hmm. So I, I'm, I'm definitely certain that one or more of the forsaken had to at least visit the site to see if they could take it out safely. So I think that oh, does yeah. lend a lot more credence to your theory there for sure. Yeah. Huh? Interesting. Okay. So that's one question that I had for you. Number two, and again, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, you know, expand upon this past the first question, but why did Rand lose control of Colindor? Like, was it anything more than the usual manner in which Colindor kind of just makes him lose control? Or is it, as I assume, kind of twofold in that it increases Rand's madness and that this area of the continent is still affected by that strenuous use of the bowl of the winds. Could it be the fact that both of these factors together caused him to lose control on this scale?
1: Uh, I mean, it may have been both, but I think by far the biggest factor there was <clears throat> Kalindor magnifies the taint.
0: Yeah, which is <clears throat> something else I definitely want to discuss very briefly um, just after this. So you think it was just the fact that Kalindor... Because it magnifies the taint, it just made it just gave him that extra push and just made him lose focus, lose control of his weaves, and just blindly lash out in in uh in a range yeah. against his yeah. any and all perceived threats in his immediate vicinity.
1: Yeah, because the way we see, you know, this like resonance effect from the bowl of the winds mm-hmm. um impact weaves before this. It, it doesn't, like, misdirect weaves. It just makes it harder to snap them in, like, together. Like, when Deshiva shows him the gateway. And he's like, look, man, look. And he, like, the weaves are, like, vibrating. He, like, I would love to see the I can say, look, man, look at this! Look at this! Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it, Like, <laughs> it, like Dashiva, Dashiva doesn't, like, make a different weave or have the gateway go somewhere else than he was intending. It's, like, it does what he means it to do. It's just harder to do, and it Wants to fall apart, huh. whereas what Rand did was lash out in all directions rather than do what he planned on doing, and so I think that is that is an effect of the magnified taint and madness.
0: I could yeah, he I mean he was just he was going crazy at that point. It was, it was very intimidating to read. Mm-hmm. I loved mm-hmm. that scene. Before we continue on with my next point here, uh, I well, just
1: well so Sorry. there's one more thing I wanted to add to that. Go for it. That could have played a role here. Rand names the Dark One.
0: Yeah, and I didn't see any noticeable change in, like, atmosphere or sickness or the attention of the Dark
1: One. So, the previous
0: time, Rand named the Dark One. Wasn't that in Faldara? In Faldara. Do you remember what happened? Yeah, he got nauseous. He saw, like, tunnel vision. He, like, lost, like, focus with his eyes. And Nynaeve calls him on it. She's like, I was watching you when you said the name Shaitan. You just felt his attention. So...
1: Uh, Rand felt like his head was struck by a gong and, and things were like shivering into and out of focus.
0: Right, he saw two of Kolondor in front of him after he was kind of like knocked down for the second no. time. Uh,
1: yes, and, and that aligns with how he was seeing like double and things going in and out of focus in Faldara when he named the Dark One.
0: Okay. I thought that could have been just Bashir knocking him out across the head, but that's interesting.
1: But, yeah, it's like, I really think Rand did attract the attention of the Dark One, and that may have played a role in how out of control
0: things got. Mm. Interesting. Um, I think, I think, I just remembered something that I had meant to discuss in the future when I brought it up weeks and weeks ago when we were discussing... I think it was in Lord of Chaos Part One, and I was talking about my distrust of Bashir because of what he did in um, his test uh-huh. to see if Rand who was who he really claimed to be. Um, I, I said there was another moment that that you know I was distrustful of, of Bashir until a moment in Path of Daggers. I think I said that in that episode until a moment in Path of Daggers, and I think this is that moment if I'm remembering this correctly, if memory serves. It was when Bashir decided. I'm going to knock him over. I'm going to actually strike him and make sure that the Dragon Reborn loses Kalandor. And I have to get his attention because he is killing all of us. He's killing the Shan-Chan. He's killing his own army. I think it was this moment where I actually decided, okay, Bashir is, he's the real deal. He, he might have some hidden motive, but he's honest and he is not a dark friend. I think it was in this scene that I decided that. Hmm. Okay. Um, just just the fact that he was willing while Rand Althor is screaming come at me Shaitan and is literally as you said before raining lightning in all directions Like this is one of the most powerful moments that Rand as a, as a fi- sorry as a figure has the fact that Bashir was willing to tackle him and strike him down in an attempt to stop him ending innocent lives or at least what he perceives as innocent lives on his own part I thought that was very ballsy very mm-hmm. ballsy and very honest, and I thought, okay, at this point, I think this is where I started to officially and t- completely trust Bashir again. Yeah, okay. I just remembered that as you were saying that, so I wanted to get that out of the way too. Okay. Um, okay, here. So, ba, 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 ba. Um, my next question: Were you were you done addressing this point? Uh huh. Okay. My next question: We learn from Cad Swain that Colindor, in her in her words, can only be safely wielded. If linked with two women and one of them guiding the flows. Uh huh. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and major spoilers for for the rest of the series, probably the biggest spoiler possible. But that's not what happened in the Pit of Doom, right? Like, like neither Moiraine nor Naive were guiding the flows there. It was still Rand guiding the flows. Could it just be like in this particular moment, Rand wasn't concerned about using Colindor safely? So
1: I need to reread that scene because I haven't read A Memory of Light in seven years. God damn! Really? Yeah, I, I read it the day it came out, and then I read it again a couple weeks later. God, damn, I've uh, read it
0: fifteen times since. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, but if I remember that correctly, that is what they did. Moradin grabbed Kalindor, and they forced him into a circle
0: right. with Nynaeve yep, yep, and
1: Warren. Yeah, and then Rand linked with them on top of that, and then he managed the flows.
0: Okay, so the, the, the circle was actually Moiraine and Nynaeve, and Moradin and Rand was yes. just linked with the with the women, or one of the women? Yeah,
1: because they needed Moradin using the true power the true through power. Kalindor. Right. To,
0: and then Kalindor being a saw on real yeah. of uh, f- for, for the taint. The, the, or for the, the true, power. true power. Right, right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. But I, I would have to reread... Uh, I may be fuzzy on the details no, there. I
0: kind of like your explanation about the yeah. fact that the, the, the circle... What I was thinking beforehand was the circle meant, um, you know, Rand, Nynaeve, and Moiraine. I didn't stop to consider that, no, it was actually a trap. It was it was Moradin wielding colindor Nynaeve and Moiraine yes. linking with him, taking control of it with the flaw, and then Rand just feeding off of that to combine all of the powers into one. Interesting. Okay. Correct. I yeah. kind of like that. Because
1: Moradin is is undoubtedly holding Kalendor. Oh, yeah, scene. you
0: can't argue that yeah. for sure. Um, my last question, and this is something that's a little... Um, um, how do I want to put this? Just from left field, I suppose. Uh, okay. the dark friend, David Hanlon. Is this uh-huh. Millar? Before we know him as Millar? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that my, my suspicions there... This is the first time I actually made that connection. I wanted to make sure I made the correct connection there.
1: Okay, Yeah. Uh, I, I'll i just tack on to that because yep. we do have this one scene. Um, <laughs> it, I, I enjoy this scene
0: greatly. With the lady Cheyenne?
1: Jakeem likes his brandy. <laughs> yeah,
0: Jakeem. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. Oh. Uh, right, so, as far as
0: the deaths that he was worried about, this wasn't as bad.
1: Yep, yep. So, um, lore things mm-hmm. before we get into our listener questions. I really only have like one more lore thing that we haven't already discussed. Okay. I I was going to talk about Calendor, but we kind of went over that already. Sweet. Um that is Elaine's Turangreal. Okay. <laughs> um this is where the red rod Turangreal comes in. Okay. Uh because this is this is kind of a meme at this point in the fandom. Oh. And and a lot of people still are like, you know, like, what, what happened there? Uh, the, this was never answered outright by Robert Jordan because when people asked him about it, he was like, you're not old enough. <laughs> like, even oh. if they were like adults, he'd be like, you're not old enough. I'll, I'll tell you when you grow up, like, you know, uh, and then he also made a comment at one point where he was like, uh, why is it always the women who ask about yeah, this? He, I remember like, you yeah. saying that. No. <laughs> um, but the implication given is that there was something very sexual involved with this. There's there's the red rod, like it, it, the kind of joke name for this is that it's like Elaine's rod of pleasure. Okay. <laughs> um, and and later in Winter's Heart, we'll see Bergeta sort of reference back to this when Elaine is getting it on with Rand, and Brigida's like, I'm gonna get drunk enough to to. You know what? I'm gonna get drunk enough to strip my clothes off and dance on the table yeah. naked, implying that is what Elaine was doing uh, after messing around with this Turon rail.
0: How does that imply that though? I don't. How? Uh,
1: it's. It, we'll get there when we get to that scene, okay. but it it very much is is a reference back to this.
0: I remember Brigida saying exactly that that she wants to get drunk enough to do this to, to yeah. dance because on the
1: table. Because Brigida's saying it like in reference to like Elaine specifically. In that, in that moment. But we'll get to that uh, next week when we record the first half of Winter's Heart. That'll be in the first half? So. Yeah. Okay. That's in like chapter 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so yeah, that was my only uh, <laughs> kind of lower point hey, that we haven't already pleasure. touched. <laughs> um, but we do have a few listener questions. Do we? Awesome. Uh, so. Uh, we had one of them, Michael McKnight asked what was up with the traps around calendar additional people putting their own traps on top of rands or what uh we we addressed that and i i think i agree with him that it was additional you know it was forsaken putting their own traps um and then kevin stotts uh replied to that and he said along this line what about jahar Narishma's part in the prophecy and ah, i think that's a really good point because he is referenced in the prophecies of the dragon who follow uh, who draws it out shall follow after And that is uh, something that Rand kind of forgets in this sequence when he's being mistrustful is that Narishma fulfilled that prophecy. And that prophecy implies he will be a loyal follower of Rand. He will follow after Rand. Yeah. You know? So, okay. Um, yeah. And then Michael McKnight asks again, he's like, what do you think about the length? Isn't this the shortest of all 14 books? Uh, and it is. I kind of addressed that a little, a little earlier in our style discussion. But and I
0: may or may not wish that Crossroads of Twilight had been shorter. Yet,
1: um, I, I believe Crossroads of Twilight is the second shortest.
0: Yeah, I think. It, yeah, <clears throat> I just, I, I, don't know. I wish Crossroads of Twilight had been ten pages long because that's about all that book I can fucking stand. <laughs> um, wait, well, where did that go? Um.
1: I'm I'm trying to find the... So yeah, Path of Daggers is a hair over 200,000. Crossroads of Twilight is about 250,000.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, Crossroads of Twilight is like an entire quarter longer Yeah, in
1: fact, as I'm looking at this chart, uh, both the Dragon Reborn and Winter's Heart are shorter than Crossroads of Twilight.
0: What? Winter's Heart. Yeah. That's such a thick paperback that I have, though. It looks like one of the longest books.
1: No, it, it is also pretty short. I think it's only like thirty-four wow. or thirty-five chapters. The paperback when, you is so like, thick. Uh, when you compare that to like, when you compare that to Lord
0: of Chaos, which has like oh, yeah, sixty-five I mean, chapters. Lord of Chaos and Shadow Rising, both of which are huge books. I'm oh, looking at yeah. squaring up a storm here.
1: Um, uh, but that said, you're like. Just looking at the physical size of a book isn't really indicative, yeah. Of yeah, life. yeah no, I'm just explaining because, why I had the misconception,
0: yeah.
1: uh, yeah, because you know, you can get like different thicknesses of pages and things yeah. like that, font but, sizes, and yeah, yeah, Here but yeah, go. Path of Daggers is the shortest, and I, I mean, I think it's the shortest because of this weird structure in it, it's something that uh, Robert Jordan just had to do, um. He, I doubt he wanted it to play out the way it, the way it is, um, but just because of the way his various timelines were working out across character plots, he had to throw this together and um, and if he had made this book longer, he would have had to basically combine it with another book. Mm. And I don't think he was ready to write a 500, 550,000 word book.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. He he wrote like a 390,000 word book, but that's a, <laughs> that's a far cry. You know, that's like, that's like longer than the first draft of Oathbringer.
0: I was going to say, it's not, it's no Oathbringer. <laughs> I was actually going there next. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like Oathbringer in the published version was about 460,000 words. Yeah. So like almost a hundred thousand words shorter than if he had combined Path of Daggers and Crossroads or Path of Daggers and Winter's Heart. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know how you could uh, <laughs> how you could really justify.
0: Well, I don't think he would have big. combined them in so, their entireties. He probably he probably would have just had to stagger some of these scenes into. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know Knight how dreams. he would have done
1: that. Yeah, but then the no, we did have like, a
0: discrepancy with timelines. We, like, we see a lot of people complaining about Tamal Thor being with Perrin and also being with Rand in the Sanderson trilogy at the end. Like, we did have some, some timelines that ended up not overlapping, right? Or actually, right. sorry, uh-huh. overlapped too much, I should say.
1: You know. Yeah. Um, okay, and then so we only have one more question from Johnny Andrefsky, and he says. Okay. I'm guessing a lot of certain parts from the Shen campaign were informed by Jordan's time in
0: Vietnam. What do you think? Well, we, we talked about this a little bit, I think, in The Dragon Reborn. I think it was in there. Talking about his... Uh, it might have been actually in The Shadow Rising Part 3, now that I'm thinking about it. Talking about how it was, his, yeah. his experiences as, as a veteran soldier might have influenced the way he... Some manners in which he wrote this series. Yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would just say, as far as my answer to this question goes, listen to the short the Shadow Rising Part 3 that we covered. We I think we, we did a, a justifiable job on that front. But what about you, dude?
1: So, I really do think it is. Uh, he has such a grasp of the frantic, chaotic, fractured nature of warfare. Fog of in war, this storm of battle. I mean, everything yeah. is said in those words. Exactly. And, you know, how I brought up early on, even though we call these Rand chapters, much of these chapters are not in Rand's head. We're jumping around, you know, we're in the heads of like three or four different Shanshan Shan soldiers, you know, we're we're back with Rand, and then we get through these various points of view enough pieces to put the whole picture together. So, having having this limited third-person perspective, can bring out uh i think this authentic version of warfare and that's something that robert jordan was able to do so well because he had that experience in vietnam yeah okay i agree so uh
0: that brings us to the end of our listener questions uh, but we still need to go over our three favorite scenes. Yes, we do. Yeah. I have four written down, three that are my favorite, one of which is an honorable mention. Okay. Um, I'll give us a, I'll give us a start, if you don't mind. Go for um, it. I want to highlight the scene with Rochaid. Rochaid? Rochaid? Rochaid?
1: Investigating
0: Roshide? the corpse of Egan Padros and tossing Rand the coin that he uh-huh. supposedly finds on the man. And the fact that Rand doesn't even react. He just lets the coin bounce off of his arm. <laughs> I think that has to go on record as perhaps the subtlest you" f- I've ever seen one character offer to another. You know? and, and I wanted to ask, what does it say about Jordan's knack for creating a character like Roshide and others like Torvald and, and Corlin Dasheva that bring out such vindictive glee out of a, like a reader like myself whenever we get to see Rand get the chance to knock them down a peg or three? I just thought it, it was well done. Very well done. Yeah. Yep. Um, what is perhaps the greatest and most subtle hint that Jordan has placed in this entire series, I think, regarding the nature of the flaw with Colindor, And in her words, it yeah. seems to magnify the taint. What a, yep. and I wrote down, what a beautifully clever way to hide and yet hint at. One of the biggest secrets that we will ever come to know in this series. It seems to magnify the taint. She is so close. She's just so close and she's not quite there. It's such a brilliant tease. I just, I get chills every time I return to that line. Especially now that I know the secret. Yeah. It's just so (laughs) good. It's so good. Um, of course, you're going to be able to tell how much of a Cad Swain fanboy I am. Because, of course, my, my next favorite scene, my very favorite scene, also has to do with Cad Swain. Wow. And it's something that we covered in the previous episode, in part one of A Path of Daggers. The agreement between Cad Swain and Leah As I said before, okay, yeah. and I'll say it again, this is one of the most important moments in the entire series. The united efforts of these two women, who are you know each as powerful of character as they are. And in Cat Swain's case, of course, that's powerful in The One Power. What it ultimately means for the journey of this soul of the dragon, it's just... I love it. I love yep. it. It's so important. Um, and my honorable mention... Uh, that that was my most favorite scene in this entire book. But my honorable mention is this very final scene. Very, very final scene where Jordan pulls out into this om- omniscient third person that he does on occasion. He gives us the sweeping ending, but he has this memorable line they planned and the pattern absorbed their plans weaving toward the future foretold this this reminder that jordan gives us that though everything kind of seems to be falling further and further apart there is still a plan and there is many secrets to come i may have had a small gripe or two about the lack of spectacle that we had with this particular ending but with his final lines you know jordan still manages to to keep our trust i thought it was excellent and i also wanted to point out the added detail at the end of the previous scene with Egwene, you know, that, that, uh-huh. that, that ends the narrative proper. The duality we get in that imagery with Mouch rearing black and smoking against a white sky to kind of tie together nicely this black and white symbol of the Aes Sedai that Egwene is growing to represent. I just, ugh, the man is just so damn clever with his visual metaphors. He's just oh, yeah. so damn clever.
1: Yeah, you know that he's, like, he'd been looking forward to writing that scene with, like, The Gateway and Dragon Mount Black yes. against the White
0: Sky and I Tarvalon. I hear him chuckling with honest yeah. mirth as he <laughs> writes that scene. I just, ah, oh, so perfect. Oh, yeah. So that's it for me. Okay. So, perhaps
1: surprising, perhaps not. All three of my favorite scenes are during... That sequence uh, <laughs> ran okay, against yep. the Shanchan.
0: Not surprising at all, but I'm so excited uh, to
1: hear why. And I'm going to bring this down to like the actual sentence, like word by word level, okay. because I love Robert Jordan's writing and his turn of phrase. My number three scene is from Varric's point of view. This this you know Shanchan like under officer who's trying to get back to um like uh, what was it Banner General Chion Mai and then he finds him dead but it's before him before he finds him dead he's like sneaking through the woods and he sees these altarans and i'm going to read this out because it is so incredibly written black streaks flashed from among the trees emptying Altaran saddles their horses dashed in every direction as the riders fell and then there were only a dozen corpses sprawled on the damp carpet of dead leaves at least one crossbow bolt jutting from every man. Nothing moved. Varick shivered in spite of himself. Those foot in blue coats had seemed easy at first, with no pikes to stand behind, but they never came into the open, hiding behind trees in dips in the ground. They were not the worst. He had been sure after the frantic retreat to the ships at Falme that he had seen the worst he ever would, the ever-victorious army, in a rout. Not half an hour gone, though, he had seen a hundred Tarabiners face one lone man in a black coat. Oh yeah. A hundred Lancers against one. And the Tarabiners had been ripped to shreds, literally ripped to shreds, men and horses simply exploding as fast as he could count. The slaughter had continued after the Tarabiners turned to flee, went on so long as one of them remained in sight. Like, what gorgeous writing. Mm. What a way to paint a scene. You know, like, he... People will complain about Robert Jordan's descriptions, but man, that guy's descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> but man, that guy's descriptions. Hell and yeah. then my second scene is from Kareed's point of view, because <sighs> Furek Kareed is one of my absolute favorite characters in the series. Yeah, you've mentioned, yeah. He's, he's probably my favorite, like, tertiary character. And it just says so much about his his personality when he's you know sitting with these officers and this Jadranka guy who is uh you know it says Jadranka was the senior of the three captains behind kareed having served as long as kareed himself a short thin man with a prominent nose and such airs you might have thought him of the blood that horse would stand out at a mile you know and then Jadranka's, you know belittling the the news and iran's army and he goes we'll crush them with swords or brooms the light burned my eyes. I can hardly wait for a decent engagement. I told the scouts to press on until they found them. I won't have them slipping away from us. You did what? Kareed said softly. Like, just Those that one words. line. Those oh. three words
0: with so much menace and weight.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it, it says everything you need to know about fear, Kareed, And then the fact that, just just further down the page, Jodronka says, Do you think to abandon your men, we rally them and attack you? He cut off, gurgling, as Karid's sword point went neatly into his throat. Mm. There were times fools could be tolerated, and times not. <laughs> yes. Oh. So, and then of course, my favorite scene in this book, my favorite scene in the whole series. Whole series? Rand. And, and I'm going to read this out because it is so damn whole good. whole
0: series, okay, go for it.
1: Yeah. With Kalendor blazing in his hand, he did not remember blazing the, raising the blade overhead. He stared at the hills where his enemies hid. They were gray now, with thickening rain and dense black clouds blocking the sun. What was it he had told Egan Padros? I am the storm, he whispered. A shout in his ears, a roar, and he channeled. Overhead the clouds boiled. Where they had been the black of soot, they became midnight, the heart of midnight. He did not know what he was channeling. So often he did not, in spite of Esmodian's teaching. Maybe Luceron was guiding him, in spite of the man's weeping. Flows of cyadines spun across the sky. Wind and fire and water. Fire. The sky truly did rain lightning. A hundred bolts at once. Hundreds. Forked, blue-white chaffs stabbing down as far as he could see. The hills before him erupted. Some flew apart under the torrent of lightning like kicked anthills. Flames sprang up in the thickets. Trees turning to torches in the rain. Flames racing through olive orchards. Like... <laughs> and then and then a little further down, shoving Kalindor high, he screamed at them. Come against me if you dare. I am the storm. Come if you dare, Shaitan. I am the dragon reborn. A thousand sizzling lightning bolts hailed down from the clouds. Again, something struck him down. He tried to fight up again. Kalendor, still shining, lay pace from his outstretched hand. The sky shattered with lightnings.
0: You know, if, if you had asked me <laughs> ten years ago what I thought of this scene, I would have probably told you, oh my god, I forgot how good this was. That line, I am the storm, is just so powerful. But since then, honestly, I think it's kind of led to... I don't want to say a trope, but I've heard that line kind of reiterated and reformed in so many other fantasy books at this point. I mean, a lot even in the Stormlight Archive has uh, is very, very similar to that. It, it has since been ruined for me. When I went through and read this time, that exact scene that you just went over... I kept thinking to myself, oh, this would have been so cool if it wasn't just copied by every other author afterward. That line, I am the storm, <laughs> is so awesome. It's such a good line. But I don't know. I, I've i heard it too much since then. That it's kind of lost its huh. magic for me. But I, th- th- that does nothing to lessen Jordan's ability in this scene. At, at a, on a word-by-word basis in which he can just give you that evocative punch in every one of these scenes is just so so good i see why it's your favorite i see why and years and years back now we've been discussing this i, I i'm so glad I've, I've managed to finally get drew down and justify why this is such a great sequence everybody else can hear why now it's just it's mm. Yeah, I, I yeah. it's moments like this that really really make me wish Jordan had been around to write the end of the series Sanderson did a oh, perfect yeah. job he did a phenomenal job with the ending of this series but oh god it just it makes you wonder what was lost when we lost the man who was Robert Jordan right yeah
1: so before we move into the final draft do you have any concluding thoughts you want to go over um
0: no, I, or actually I do. I just have one. I, I wanted to reiterate again. This is the most, I think this is the most open-ended book in the series at this point. Um, I asked you earlier, like what was our real big climax? And I got your answer on that. But um, I don't know. When you compare it to like the the previous climactic explosive scenes that we've ha- we had in the Shadow Rising and the Dragon Reborn in uh, the Lord of Chaos, Crown of Swords, Fires of Heaven. I mean, there's clearly lots to come. Going forward, knowing especially what we know. But as far as endings in the Wheel of Time, Path of Daggers kind of left a bit more to be desired. Um, But I do want to say that knowing what I know is going to happen in Winter's Heart, I am so down. I am so ready for it. And for now, I will say I've had my fill of Randall Thor's badassery. And like a nice filet mignon, I'm just kind of left with this warm glow and a stupid grin on my face. It was so good while it lasted. It was so good. Okay. And that's
1: it. So I only have one concluding thought, and that is I'm going to express my eternal bafflement that any time you make a post online and ask people what their least favorite books are in the series, inevitably people mention the path of daggers almost to the same extent as crosswords of twilight. Mm. And I will just say, I do not understand that. I, I just, I don't have an explanation for it. There's so much cool stuff that happens in this book. It's short.
0: It's fast. Like
1: it, it does not drag at
0: all. I I don't know. I don't get it. I would, so. I would kind of chalk it off to at the risk of sounding pretentious, um, read your ignorance. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Are we ready to go into the final draft? I think we are. The final draft? My band. Yes. Okay. I was going to say my man or my brother and end up saying my band. Oops. But, you know, I'm not going to surprise anybody that listens to this at this point. So I have two entries now for the final draft for today. Oh, okay. Neither of which are particularly clever. Um, one of which I've been waiting a little while to bring to the podcast, just because it's it does tie into the Wheel of Time, but in a sort of generic way. Okay. Um, I've been waiting to bust this out on one, though I didn't have any particular tie in to any moment in this book. This kind of just ties into the Wheel of Time as a whole. This here is from Amsterdam Brewery. It claims it to be a deluxe amber. Um, okay. I'm on the. Uh, I'm on. The website right now and they claim it's you know perfectly balanced beer combines all the qualities of a traditional pale ale with smoothness of an easy drinking lager it was cheap i think it was like three dollars and 15 cents um for a single can here um but the name of this beer here it was okay it was it did kind of taste cheap but there's nothing wrong with that it was um it wasn't bad anyway there there's nothing negative i had to say about this beer it went down easy despite the fact that it was warm so as i've said before in previous <laughs> episodes that kind of speaks to the quality here this is an ale and it's called i'll show you here drew it's called big wheel nice <laughs> so you can see what i meant when i said it kind of just loosely and generically ties yeah, into it's the a, it's a meta the tie-in bucket. It's a meta tie-in, yeah, and it's it's good yeah. for one wherein I don't have like a specific tie-in and a specific moment for this book that we just finished. But yeah, that's like when I uh, I brought the
1: ages on for the great. Oh movie, yeah, I right. Yeah. I, yeah,
0: I you know what? I forgot about that until you brought it up. Yeah, um, but the second thing I was drinking because I don't want to drink too much beer over the course of an episode because as I've said before, I just said it on our live stream fiftieth episode. I have the bladder <laughs> of a nine-year-old girl. So, if I had been (laughs) drinking too much beer, I would have had to stop and pause this podcast several times for a trip to the bathroom. To counteract that, I was drinking a liqueur. Um, This here is a disarono. Oh, amaretto. It's amaretto tasting liquor. You know, it's got, or liqueur, I should say, it's got like that characteristic kind of almond sweetness to it. It's so sweet. I found it disgusting. But deliciously disgusting in a weird, kind oh, of it's super good <laughs> way. It's so good, but it's almost disgusting with how good it is. It's just so sugary. I took a a, a, a big old shot once you were doing your uh, your uh, summary there at the very top of this episode, and I was just like, I'm sure I was making a face in the webcam because it just felt like the inside of my mouth should have been crystallizing with sugar. It was <laughs> just so overpowering, overpoweringly sweet. But, I mean, as far as drinks go, I'm, I I just imagine this would mix very, very well with most colas. A root beer would probably do it yeah. justice. Coffee, I'm reading here that coffee apparently it goes very good in. But as far as, like, the Amaretto, uh, the Sirono, it's, it, it it's a nice tasting liquor, 28% ABV. Mm-hmm. And it definitely floated me through the first half of this episode before I opened the big wheel or just big wheel. So So a little bit of trivia about Di Serono.
1: Yeah. I don't drink it super often, but I have a soft spot for it because oh? back in like Man, it would have been two thousand summer of two thousand ten uh I wrote the bulk of my second book, and I did so with a Dixie cup of Amaretto with of DiSorono specifically, right next to my computer the whole time. So Really, that was like my go to <laughs> my go to drink that summer for some reason. awesome,
0: awesome. So, I yeah. had a phase like that with Crown apple for some reason. a whole summer I was just going insane about Crown Royal apple whiskey. It was just my yeah. stuff very similar. so what are you drinking, dude? you know i'm
1: I'm kicking myself because i I was uh I was in a rush today. I didn't really have the time to properly put thought into what beer <laughs> I wanted to do. Cause what I should have done was gotten like a brandy barrel aged barley wine or stout or something in in memoriam of Jacob Carradine.
0: Oh damn it, damn it,
1: good. <laughs> but what oh, I'm drinking is, is an East Coast IPA from True Brewing Company. I uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be bringing True on fairly often going forward. Okay. They're starting to distribute a lot more, so it's easier to get their stuff, and they're one of my favorite breweries in Colorado. I just had a beer on uh, from them for our Iron Fist episode. Oh, you know Star Wars. The beer, no joke, was called in a galaxy far, far away.
0: Oh uh, god! Yeah. Oh my god!
1: Uh, so they have like great names for their beers, tons of variety, and I'm like, this is going to be a gold mine. I'll be oh, going back to again and god. again. But yeah, so this is an East Coast IPA. It's pretty light drinking. It's not as like uh, fruity. Um, as I would expect from from like an any IPA, although I guess this is an East Coast IPA, so not technically a New England I'd IPA. I'd expect a lot of citrus in an IPA. But it's, it, I mean, it's plenty hoppy, but it's pretty easy going. It's kind of muted, very drinkable. It's, uh, I think it's 7 point, no, 5.7%, excuse me. Bitter? Um, yeah, a little bitter, not, not too bad. Okay. Um, But it's tasty. It's really drinkable. Uh, And this is... This is kind of thematic for the book in general. For a couple of scenes, including Elaine's attempted unweaving of the gateway, and Rand using Calendor and the whole battle, it's called Ageless Fire.
0: Okay. Ooh, 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 I like I like the the duality in that. Ageless, of course, being a big mm-hmm. theme of the cyclical nature of the Wheel of Time as a whole. Fire represents and how I said I look. Yeah. Oh, the hey, look. there you go. I hadn't even considered that. My man, this is like a triple entendre right there. That's good. Yeah. I like it. So, I, I mean, That's I layered. I
1: thought it was a I thought it was a pretty good like an you item. know pretty good submission. But I I do wish I had been thinking and had time to go out and get myself <laughs> a brandy barrel stout. Fair enough. You know, because Jay Kim likes his brandy. He does.
0: <laughs> well,
1: no, he doesn't anymore. He liked. Well, yeah, yeah, he likes his brandy. Tense. <laughs> oh man. But, uh, but, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Yep. This has been episode 51, 51 of the Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we are going to be heading into Winter's Heart, uh, book nine of The Wheel of Time. We are going to be doing a little more than half. Uh, we're going to read through the end of chapter 18 and offer. Okay. Uh, and you know in the meantime if you appreciate what we're doing with this you want to help support the podcast check us out on patreon patreon.com slash inking where we've got a you know a bunch of benefits for our supporters there you can get access to episodes early uh we are now releasing monthly short fiction or excerpts from our novels for all of you guys to read we got a bunch of other stuff there so check that out As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Heyo. And we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.